So my usual sleeping routine, I'd say, is not very consistent. I don't have a consistent bedtime. I don't wake up at a consistent time either. I would hope I'm the majority of the population, but probably not. I think I'm a big thinker, so when I go to bed and there's silence, that's probably the time that I make a lot of mental lists. So I've come to a point where I need to actually write those down before I go to bed, otherwise it's something that will keep me up. So usually when I go to sleep, um, for the last few years, I've just been trying to shower at night because I think it sets me up really well for a good night's sleep. It's just I know that if I'm showering, I'm going to be going to bed. So I'm a bit like a baby like that, setting up a nice little routine there. I do struggle to fall asleep, so I do end up on my phone a lot. And when I'm trying to be good, I will read, um, which tends to work a lot, but... I think I've just fallen into bad habits of relying on my phone as a little bit of a crutch. More often than not, I fall asleep um, with the sound of like nature sounds. So I use a streaming service to either get the sound of water or uh, thunderstorms, that kind of thing, so that it's nice and relaxing when I fall asleep. This is Cassie. We asked her to record a sleep diary as she tries three different ways to tackle her sleep issues. Day one, I've been asked to go to sleep tonight without using my phone at all prior to falling asleep. So I'm probably in the next hour gonna just go through my normal nighttime routine, have a shower um, and see if that makes me sleepy at all. Sleep is at the core of good health. And without enough quality sleep, everything from your mood to your body starts to break down. There's so much information out there about getting a good night's sleep. But what is a good sleep anyway? Is the information out there right for you? And does a one-size-fits-all approach work if you're trying to get better rest? I'm Dr. Sandro DeMeo, and this is In Good Health. Dr. Maura Junger is a registered health psychologist and the CEO of the Sleep Health Foundation. And she's going to help me unpack Cassie's attempts to sleep better. So, Moira, on the first day, Cassie didn't use her phone in bed. How much is our screen part of the problem? Well, I suppose I can comment from being a practitioner who worked in the 90s when people didn't have a smartphone in their room and they still had sleep problems. So we can't put everything onto the device. But back then it was other things. It was So the device really represents distraction, avoidance, not prioritising sleep. So you can insert whatever. It could be a device, could be watching TV, could be knitting, <laughs> could be oh, cleaning the house. Damn knitting. <laughs> damn knitting gets in the way. <laughs> but, of course, the device has attracted a lot of attention because mm. of not only the stimulation of it but the, um, the well, you know, the blue light emitting from the device. Yeah, that's what, exactly. So I always get told the blue light sort of hits your retina and wakes you up like it's morning. Yeah. My knitting doesn't tend to do that. <laughs> I mean, how much, though, does that make yeah, a difference? Yeah, so it does make a difference, but there's research recently showing that there's a 50-fold difference in individual differences in your response to wow. light. So some people say, oh, it doesn't worry, you know, it doesn't worry me at all, and others are really sensitive to it. So it's the same with caffeine. You know, there's a you line people up and there's a, you know, 50-fold difference. So these days, though, most of the devices have the night mode, Mm. that they have sort of more an orangey yellow glow rather than the blue light. So the blue light is, you know, we can't see light in the rainbow, but we know there's a stream, you know, lots of different colours there. 
The blue light is the one that suppresses melatonin. And melatonin, of course, is the hormone we need to initiate and maintain sleep. So if that's suppressed, obviously we're not going to be delayed with our sleep and not have good sleep. But I think um, in addition to that, because most people get around that with the, you know, the blue blocking, uh, well, either glasses, there's sort of devices you can do that, or on the, the device itself is actually not emitting blue light anymore. So I really encourage people though to think about no matter what it is, yeah, even not so much the knitting, but it's just you know it's distraction and avoidance and not prioritising going to bed. So last night I tried going to sleep without having my phone or using my phone before bed, and I think it actually went really well. So I read about 15 pages of a book um, before I just was too tired to keep my eyes open. So I switched off the nightlight and went to sleep pretty much straight away. I checked my smartwatch in the morning and it looks like I slept for about five and a half hours, which is a little bit too little for me to feel completely awesome today. Um, But I definitely didn't really wake up too much in the middle of the night. I left my phone in another room so that I wouldn't be tempted at all to have a look at it at any point in the night. Um, and in the morning when I, my alarm went off, I thought it was pretty handy. I had to actually get out of bed to physically turn off the alarm. Today, I've been asked to not have any caffeine. I'm actually going into work today as well, so we'll see how that goes. Um, I have a bit of a train commute in and then a long day. Um, I'm not a big caffeine drinker, don't have coffee, but I do enjoy pretty much like one tea in the morning and one around three o'clock. So I'll just see how I go. But yeah, with five and a half hours sleep, not sure how flash I feel, but we'll see. What about caffeine? Because some people don't drink coffee after 12, some people it's after three. I've got people who can take like a double, you know, you're at the end of the dinner party and you're like, anyone anyone want coffee? You're expecting everyone obviously to say, no, it's nine o'clock. What are you talking about? Uh, I'm, I'm lying. It's usually seven o'clock and I'm ready for bed. <laughs> and some people have two like a double espresso, and they go straight to sleep. So how much does caffeine make a difference? So I would say we, we know that caffeine is eliminated out of the system, you know, sort of four to six hours later. So most people should be fine with a, a coffee mid-afternoon at, at, at the latest. But as we all know, and I'm married to one of them, that, you know, having a short black after dinner and they can sleep all night. So it's, um, again, like we've just talked with, like the blue light as well, it's very much tailoring it to you and understanding what works for you, what doesn't work for you, taking a lot of personalisation approach to your sleep. I went to sleep pretty quickly last night um, and I've woken up, feel pretty good. Um, I'm not 100% sure not drinking any caffeine for the day actually did very much for me, but having said that, I'm not a big coffee drinker anyway. Tonight I was asked to basically dim all the lights, um, put my phone on night mode, as soon as the sun kind of started to set. So I've just been hanging out with uh, kind of dim lights. It's about 12.35 a.m., so I'm probably going to head to bed now. You can hear that Cassie tried to make her environment mimic the natural light cycles of day and night. What exactly is that doing to her sleep? We recommend that once it's dark outside that you should be in dark conditions as well. 
So because the, yeah, the, the brain gets the messages that it's dark via the eyes, via the optic nerve, goes right into the brain, the, you know, the pineal glands starts, to, you know, secreting melatonin. So if you're not in the right conditions, you're not going to have all that lovely textbook stuff that happens. Mm-hmm. So Cassie tried to, you know, she was just in, in, in the dim light, but I noticed on, she was still awake at 20 past 12. <laughs> but I think because it was just one night and it's just, it's not going to shift. Your body clock's going to take a bit of time to shift, like maybe a number of weeks. So Weeks, really? Yeah, probably. Like when, it, when we have a, like I say, a, a teenager with delayed sleep phase syndrome, and they, their body clock is such that they're not really initiating sleep till well after, say, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., and they're getting up at 6 for school and parents, everyone's going crazy because it's, you know, it's such a distressing time, lots of anxiety surrounded that. When I was a clinician full-time, we could shift their body clock, but we'd, we'd wait for the school holidays and, just, and take a couple of weeks to just gradually shift their body clock back via light, but using light at the appropriate times, and sometimes plus or minus melatonin, you know, orally at night. So Cassie's clearly trying to address some of the big barriers that can disrupt her sleep, but there's no real silver bullet here, is there? So she was thinking about strategies. She'd heard about caffeine, she'd heard about, you know, the light, and she'd heard about not having a device next to her. So all really good things, but none of them on their own are going to be any kind of magic cure, and they're going to have to be in combination, or they're going to have to be the thing that's affecting you, because maybe the caffeine wasn't affecting her. Maybe the light is not something that's really sensitive to her. So it's something that we've got these um, kind of simple answers sometimes, like, you know, often it's tell us the top five tips or tell you know, all that sort of stuff to, to really complex questions. Everyone loves their top, <laughs> top tips, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, so I would talk about principles. You yeah, know? right. That's what, you know, in the sleep world we have to talk about principles rather. So I would give people, you know, top five tips, but they're going to be, uh, they have to be tailored to that person. Mm. So it's just more, you know, so nurture your body clock, understand the effects of caffeine, all those sorts of things. But there, I mean, there's five principles that have been talked about from one of my, like an, an Oxford um, scholar who's, he's been really in- instrumental with sleep and I've followed his work over, you know, a couple of decades now. So he talks about, he's, he's did a published thing this year with um, looking at five principles of sleep and like valuing sleep, prioritising sleep, personalising sleep, trusting in it, protecting it. Mm. But they're the things that will help. The clinical population is very different to the general public mm. in, in sleep. Like say my, my specialty was insomnia and what I would tell to someone, tell someone with really chronic insomnia so bad that they found, them, they found a clinician who specialises in insomnia, you know, via their GP, via a sleep physician, waiting several months to see me. They're really desperate. And that person, the things I tell them, is very different to Cassie. Like from the, from the sleep diary voice, she was a young person and she was pretty happy with, you know, staying up till 12.20. She was really energy. You know, she's only getting five or six hours. She knows she probably needs more than that. There's no humans that would get away with less than six hours routinely. So we say people need seven to nine as adults, but some are okay, let's sort of outliers are okay on six and some that are, need nine or ten. And all of them are considered normal, just that the average is about eight. So they're all normal. Anything yeah. in that window is normal. Yeah, anything may be appropriate. We say may be appropriate, but we the recommendation. May be appropriate. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> may be appropriate. Because knowing that that's for that, there's a small sort of group yeah. that it might be okay for them, but that most people, you know, the vast majority need about eight, seven to nine, mm. so, so average eight. So that whole eight-hour story is a bit like saying everyone needs to be 
65 kilos or everyone needs to have a shoe size of eight. Like you, you can't really say that. It's just so much sort of nuance and, and, it, and it depends on so many other factors. And there's so much sleep science out there that it, it's so easy to either misinterpret or be trying tips that might not be right. Just because what you've heard on the radio or, or you know, that it might apply to you, there's, there's different, um, you know, different applications. But I think what's happened with sleep, like there's unsatiable appetite for sleep, like talking about sleep. Um, every time I'm at a dinner party, anyone knows what I do, everyone talks to me about their sleep problems. Um, the media love to talk about sleep. So we've kind of got the cart before the horse a little bit in that we haven't caught up as a society with, you know, recommendations and education in the schools and education in workplaces and with the actual um, proper science, there's a lot of noise about sleep and all this stuff around oh, it's the devices and it's the caffeine and, and of course all of those things do contribute but it's also you know, remembering that people did have sleep problems a long time ago. So this is a great opportunity to just talk about sleep and the, and the nuance and uh, and just getting the, yeah, getting the facts right and, and not thinking that um, that it's whatever, and certainly whatever you try, like say if you try to cut out caffeine or you try to not have your device, that you do that for a really concerted period of time, like several weeks. You know, you, you can't expect any change in one night. So what does what does good look like when it comes to our sleep? Because I, f- I feel like it's such a loaded question, yes. but, but what does yes. it mean to get a good night's sleep? I'd love to not talk, you know, talk in terms of good and bad. Right. Like I think people um, saying they're a bad sleeper straight away would change that language and just say, look, don't don't label yourself a bad sleeper. It's part of the thing. Be more optimistic and positive in your language that that maybe you're not getting adequate sleep, but it doesn't. Don't take the blame. Don't say you're a bad sleeper. But someone who's getting adequate sleep, say what? So in inverted commas, what good sleep looks like is that they feel that they're refreshed and it might not be restored. They may not feel the, the minute they wake up. I certainly didn't feel like that this morning. <laughs> you know, it's more like once you've been awake for an hour or so and you've had your shower and you've had some exercise, or some, you, then you monitor how you feel. Do you feel restored? You don't feel like going back to sleep? Yep, good. You're probably getting enough sleep. If you're able to have your um, fulfil your roles, like in occupational settings and social settings, that you're able to just fulfil your roles um, without having accidental sleeps, like in unintentional naps, then you're probably getting enough sleep. But um, so the, the poor people who feel like they're not getting enough sleep, they know, you know, they know it's they're not prioritising it. They probably sometimes it's just it's not even their fault. It's just the systemic you know, the amount of work, you know, doing two three jobs, or having a lot of you know uh, caring responsibilities and not getting enough support. So it's the thing that'll go for sure. Like you know, you know, you'll sac- you'll sacrifice sleep for deadlines and, I mean, even I do that. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that really brings us to the bigger question. So if we take a step back as a nation, how many of us are not actually getting a good night's sleep? We, we know that at least 40%, probably a bit high, and so, are, not, are reporting on any given night not getting adequate sleep. Wow. And we know out of that group it's 15% have the diagnosable, meet the criteria for chronic insomnia. And what does that mean? So it means it's been more than most nights of the week, inadequate sleep, like they're not not able to initiate or maintain sleep. And we don't put a number, there's no number on it. It doesn't mean X amount of hours or anything. It's just this sort of broad international classifications of what insomnia is. And that it's been, you know, for several months. Some, some classifications say three months, some say six. It used to say 12 back in when I used to work. So it's been, it's, so it's usually a long time. Like it's not just, and it's not due to something else. And it causes just subjective distress. 
and a lot of impact in your quality of life. So there might be people out there who say have five or six hours or so, but they're they're fine. Their, their quality of life's fine. They're not distressed by it. They've got energy, um, and they sort of know that oh yeah, like I probably don't get enough sleep sometimes. So of that, so that fifteen percent who have what we you know what we know is chronic insomnia, and most of them have so, sort of it's been so bad for them that they've sought some kind of you know they've got a diagnosis and they've they've seen some kind of health professional, and often they're on medication. Even though we know, even the medical people would agree that um, non-drug strategies are the best long-term for insomnia. People sometimes get stressed about not getting enough sleep, yes, such that yes. it starts to affect their sleep. Is that is that a thing? It is a thing. It's so it's so ironic, and um, you know, there's orthorexia and, and orthosomnia. Now, you know, just monitoring too much of your sleep will, in fact, ironically, paradoxically, make you sleep worse and have you have this sleep specific anxiety. But I guess in the general population, if you don't have anxiety about your sleep and you're really, really, really into biodata, then sleep tracking is okay. But there's this small subgroup of people who do get really anxious about things like that and then put too much pressure on themselves. And people with insomnia, like the sort of the, the condition insomnia, they, um, you know, they've got their personality type is such they're usually really hardworking, diligent, conscientious. Little bit of a you know prone to worrying, and so that profile they should just put this tracker in the drawer. <laughs> like yeah, back in the olden days, talking about the nineties, the equivalent was folders and folders and folders, like reams of Manila folders of sleep diary that they'd pen and paper. So the equivalent had been monitoring too much. So with respect, I'd say thank you. I'll take those. Let's stop the monitoring now. <laughs> you know, just for just for the next two weeks at least, don't don't monitor your sleep. We're going to monitor your body, you know, internal, how you feel about things and when you're sleeping and tired and go to bed then rather than just all this, I must get my eight hours. Look, I think having to experiment and try three different tips, it was definitely a little bit of a nudge to actually do something about getting better sleep. So for sure, I think I definitely will try to limit how much time I'm on my phone. And I have to say, actually, last night I tried dimming the lights and initially it was quite like a romantic feeling. It was real mood lighty. And I was like, what's going on? I think in the end it was great. I think it just puts you in a really nice mood and it's like a form of self-care, right? Like you're off your phone, you're relaxed, you're having a nice shower, like things are just really chilled out. So those are probably the two things that I definitely try more often. Look, I'm not going to aim for perfection doing it every single night, but if I can implement it three, four nights a week, that would be great. Because the sleep itself, like whether all the stuff Cassie talked about and all, the, all the, the tips and all that, it boils down to really the regulatory systems, like sort of our homeostatic sort of sleep pressure and our circadian system. And if we get those right and they're doing their thing, and that varies with different people what, what that means for them to be right, then this beautiful sleep will come to you in spades. And I, I think that I've worked in health for a long time and I th- I've just never seen a more modifiable thing than sleep. And it's such an important thing because when you're sleeping well, you'll feel better, you'll eat better, you'll have the energy to move better. I just think it's the foundational, you know, pivotal thing with, with all health. Thank you, Cassie, for putting your sleep habits under the microscope for us and to Dr. Maura Junger, breaking down why you might need to change the way you think about a good night's sleep. And thank you for listening in to In Good Health. If you're enjoying the show, make sure you hit follow so you don't miss an episode. And there's already been a bunch of great episodes this season, so check those out if you haven't yet. In Good Health is a Vic Health podcast 
produced by Deadset Studios and hosted by me, Dr. Sandro DeMeo. 